I'll be honest in saying that I don't really care for this episode. It's not like it's lamentation-worthy or anything like that. But there's a lot of weakness to this episode, and I, looking into the construction of the script, it kind of makes sense why. Oh, don't mistake me, I really like the Nog stuff, and everything about Quark, Nog, and Rom is basically awesome. In fact, I think you could have fleshed that out to an entire episode by itself, but this is also not the first time that Nog going to the Academy has been a subplot in, a, in another episode where the rest of the episode was not as interesting. <clears throat> So the main plot, I actually have less notes about the main plot, which takes up far more time. The main plot, Renee Echeverria originally wanted to do this thing where Terry Farrell, the woman who plays Dax, was going to be playing all these characters herself. Now, I kind of think that might have been a better decision, personally. They, first of all, it would allow her to stretch as an actress. Second of all, I think she could have pulled it off. And third of all, it would have basically been the same general type of story. Because the thing is, in the episode, and in the real life, the reason they didn't do this is they wanted Dax to actually interact, excuse me, Jadzia, to specifically interact with the individuals. But then, with one noteworthy exception, she basically, excuse me, two noteworthy exceptions, she basically doesn't. I mean, it's like, she they, they talk, and then she sees or learns about an aspect of Jadzia Dax's personality, and then they cut to the next one, where they do it again, and then they cut to the next one, where they do it again. I get the desire to keep all the cast involved, and for the most part, most of the actors did a pretty good job with their roles. I'm not complaining about that. Although, uh, Avery Brooks apparently did too good of a job. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm just saying that the same thing could have been approached by just having her be herself as in Terry Farrell play all the roles, rather than polling the others. They even ran into an issue, because they had three women. Uh, they, they, remember, they already established all her previous hosts. So they were adhering to that. Good continuity, I'm in favor of that. But they had three female previous hosts. One was Kira, that's obvious. And they wanted to have Cork be another one for comedic purposes. Sure, whatever. And then they wanted to do another one. They're like, I... I guess we could bring Keiko on. I mean, it's not like we have any other options. Oh, Rosalind Chow is not available. Okay. Um, I suppose we could have Lita? And just out of nowhere, this character, who I remind you has only shown up once in basically a glorified cameo, has suddenly become... So, like, Dax flat out says, you seven are the closest people to me, the people I trust the most. And it's just... We've never even seen this person before, except for the one brief entry. No, don't mistake me. I like Lita, and I actually have the quiet theory that as a result of this total coincidence, dragging her into this episode and forcing her to act as someone else, probably helped to bring Chase Masterson back in the future as Lita and made her into a recurring guest star character. So I'm with that. It's just... It's just such a weird supposition, isn't it? Especially given where they were going with this. And apparently... Several people involved, including Ira Stephen Bear himself, had issues with this episode. The funny thing is, their issues do not seem to be the same as my issues. The biggest complaint I usually hear when people talk about this episode is the, the episode doesn't start until Curzon gets into Odo, and then the episode really starts to get going. And it's like... <clears throat> no? No, I think that was one of the least interesting parts of the whole episode for me. At least each of the earlier interactions, like I said, showcases a side of Jadzia Dax's personality. The controlled emotional one, the intellectual introvert, the gymnast who has a great deal of interest in physical exercise and generally being athletic, the mother, 
That one amuses me, although it kind of fits. And as a quick aside, Armin Shimmerman actually does a really good job of portraying two separate people in the exact same scene. So I just wanted to give praise to that one. And then we have the lively one, the one who embraces life and, and lives to its fullest. That would be, in order, Kira O'Brien, Lita, Quark, Bashir. Then Odo, or Odo, excuse me, Cisco decides to be the creepy one, Joran. First question, why do him at all? Like, it's obvious this is a choice thing. It's not like they have to go down the line. They specifically select one, put it into someone else, and then put it back. All of these people are not active at the same time, right? So, why does Duran have to come out at all? Now, they take precautions, but if I could be bold, I'm astonished they didn't take more precautions. Straightjackets are a thing, you know. And the fact that Cisco tries to injure, excuse me, Duran tries to injure Cisco is pretty much all I need to say about that. What's really weird to me, though, is I don't get why Duran was this horrible, deadly doom person. I mean, the way he was always portrayed was that he definitely had some emotional instabilities, but that mostly he was an artist, that his big shtick was trying to practice music and trying to express himself, and he also happened to be, you know, psychopathic. Psychopathic does not mean, I'm going to kill everyone everywhere. It means you have the tendency towards having a psychopathic episode. So why is he portrayed like this in this episode? And why are they talking to him to begin with? So I mentioned we talk about Cisco again. Cisco, that is to say Avery Brooks, apparently did such a good job of portraying a deranged uh, psychopath that they had to do a second take because they thought it was too terrifying. Yes, really. I believe that fully, <laughs> by the way. I just like that's funny to think of that. So then Odo, of course, uh, goes to be Curzon. Now, first of all, they actually did a good job with... Uh, 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 God, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. I always have trouble pronouncing it. René Abergenois' uh, makeup in making him look distinct as Curzon. But what I find interesting is he insists he is a merger of Odo and Curzon, and yet in every way he does not act like that. Instead, he acts like Curzon who is in the driver's seat, and Odo, well, is in the passenger seat, or in the back seat, right? That's the way it's portrayed at almost every level. So I don't quite buy into Curzon's presentation of that one. Further to the point, what? Curzon is all boisterous, sure. And it's not like René Bergenois is a bad actor. He does a pretty decent job with what he's, ha he's held, handed. You know, he kind of comes across as this slightly more larger-than-life kind of character. And, in fact, Sisko describes him very well. He was someone who was manipulative, selfish, and arrogant, but very charismatic, because he was so likable that you kind of went along with it anyways. And that is very much how I've always pictured Curzon. Definitely this, this very friendly person who's also not really that great of a person and needs to be smacked in the face every now and again with truth or with the fact that he's pushing too far. So Jadzia, of course finally owns up to this. And, and this is the closest thing to a character arc for her, is you know she's still holding some problems with the fact that she was flunked out. This is something that's been mentioned twice before now. And then she approaches with him, and it turns out that the reason he did was because he was in love with her. This is when the episode immediately and completely loses me. Because it is emphasized that it was not just lust. It was not just the fact that she was young and pretty and pretty and pretty. He says the word pretty like five times but the fact that he felt genuine stirrings of feelings for her. 
Now, I know that I have a reputation for being a bit of a prude and a non-romantic, but I roll to disbelieve. <laughs> I don't think that there was anything close to legitimate emotional connection there. Maybe the beginnings of it. Possibility of something that might have become a real relationship. But nothing actual real in its own right. And the fact that he is consistently emphasizing n none of her qualities other than her physical appearance... Well, frankly, that says all I think it needs to, doesn't it? So, <clears throat> I shouldn't say none. He does mention a few of her qualities other than her physical appearance. It's just he keeps emphasizing that. You're so pretty and smart and pretty and kind and pretty. I get it. She's hot. Moving on. It just... I, I, I suddenly find myself completely divested of the episode. What's the point? Okay, so he flunked her because he was ashamed, and then he got to cover his shame because he reaccepted her, and now she knows that she was worthwhile, so she has the self-confidence to move forward because she was told she was worthwhile. I don't care for that. I would have liked it better if instead she pushed Curzon, and instead of this tangled, oh, wuv, wuv thing, he pushed her down because, at, like your typical arrogant, manipulative, selfish person, he was challenged by her. Think about it. The idea that this young Jadzia was someone who actually was really doing a good job, really showing her chops, and threatened either his ego or his records. So he shut her down, dis disqualified her, pushed her out of the program. And then she reapplied, and he went ahead and allowed it to go through because, well, Curzon, for all of his boisterousness and selfishness, is not a particularly evil person, right? I mean, he's, he's capable of doing bad things, but it's hard to say he's a bad person. So the same general thing applies. He looked at that and felt bad, felt guilty for having torpedoed her out of what was effectively shame and pride. He goes ahead and accepts her the second time around, acknowledges it, and then she gets to go forward. Jadzia can move forward, now knowing the truth of this situation. And there you go. External, uh, external confirmed. But if I could be completely blunt, I still don't quite like that. And I have to admit, I need time to really restructure this to make it work better. Because what I would like, personally, is if Jadzia said, You know what? I don't give a damn if you approve, Curzon. You said no to me, and that was your prerogative. And then I proved you wrong. And here I am, currently, now, proof that you were wrong. I would have preferred it if she found, of her own volition, absent the external stimuli of Curzon that she was, in fact, worthy of this calling. Just my opinion. But then again, that would have taken some serious restructuring, and we would have had to explain why he said no the first time, and why he said yes the second time, and it would have taken some work. And frankly, I would have rather just torpedoed all of that. I'm dead serious. I mean, René Chavere is a good writer, don't mistake me. He does some good stuff. But I would have rather just nixed the whole idea and gone back to the idea of having Terry Farrell play each of the characters, and have the episode be about her, about the different facets of Jadzia Dax's character. And just have Terry play each of these... I shouldn't say be so familiar. Have Farrell play each of these characters. I guess I'm pretty sure she could do that. She has the chops as an actress, especially by season three, the end of season three, I, I, I add. So she has the chops to portray this, and then we could have seen parts of what make her her. There doesn't need to be some dilemma. There doesn't need to be some drama. Just show the character. Show it on screen. And 
one of the things I like to do is to, while you're examining or showcasing a character, show how other characters act and react to them to help flesh out them as well. What I would have done is rather than Kira being this one person, I didn't write down their names, have the controlled person, the controlled Dax, played by Terry Farrell, interact with Kira and kind of relate and talk and chat about their similarities. Have the intellectual introvert kind of relate with O'Brien, who is basically an intellectual extrovert, right? You know, have Lita, if you really want to have Lita involved in this for some reason. I mean, again, I'm, I'm with more Chase Masterson, but have Lita be the person who learn, is, is on the holodeck doing some kind of calinetics, some significant calinetics for fun because it's something she enjoys doing and have uh, third Dax come on to do the same thing and they end up talking about it. You could have still had a lot of the same core elements of the episode if you restructured it so it was basically following Feral. If I'm being 100% honest, I would have wanted real time to rework this episode, if given the opportunity to do so, to tie in the Nog stuff more, because the Nog plot basically has nothing to do with the Dax plot at all. It's, it's the classic A plot, B plot problem, as I've discussed many, many times. But let's talk about the Nog plot, because I think I'm done with the Dax plot. Quark? Quark. So first of all, I like the fact that he ends the program sitting down and falls back on his backside. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but it's a nice little touch to detail that makes sense, especially on a less advanced holodeck. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the idea of different tiers of quality when it comes to holodecks makes sense, especially given how new the tech is, the same way there would be different tiers of quality when it comes to transporters. So Jake poking in. Um, Quark mentions he's willing to fund the beginnings of their the writing Suite program business. First of all, that sounds like kind of a, a dream job, writing holosuite programs. Not the intimate kind, I don't want to do that. But I mean, you know, holodeck programs, holo novels. We know that's a thing. We know that's a thing. And imagine being able to write a story while standing in it. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I know that's, this is such a geeky thing to talk about, since there's so many things you can do with a holodeck. But the thing I would want most out of a holodeck is to write. To be able to sit down and say, okay, here's this character, and, and then spend some time talking to the computer, designing them visually so it look approximate what they should look like, and then work with their voice and work with their mannerisms. This, I want them to have this kind of personality, this kind of, you know, motion to them. All right, scene one, act one. He comes in here. I have him go to about this spot computer, and then he's going to say this line and this line and say, ah, da, 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 da. And then he could play it and be like, nah, that doesn't work. Have him say this instead. That just sounds amazing to me. I almost want to invent a real-life holodeck just so I could do that. I'm going to re invent a real-life holodeck for other reasons, of course, but, you know, it's, 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 up the, it's sort of the top of the, of the list. And then, um, so the other thing I found fascinating about the idea that Quark was willing to fund it, first of all, he mentions that there's money in those programs, which I believe, but what I also find interesting is either Quark is willing to buy into the business in the hopes of being able to, you know, have a piece of what he believes would be a successful partnership, or he's willing to pay money to keep his nephew out of Starfleet. What do you think it is? It could easily be both, of course. So then <laughs> there's this really great bit where O'Brien takes him on board. And I just want to say that I wish we saw more of O'Brien and Nog interacting. I know that's a weird thing to mention, but O'Brien is so affable, but at the same time, he knows how to take charge. He's not even in the officer track. He's an enlisted man. And yet he still knows how to be the person in command. 
He's very good at it, probably as a result of his military experience. And I mean literal, unavoidable military experience, Starfleet or no. The man served in the Cardassian conflict, the Cardassian wars. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I like the idea of him just being one of the mentors to Nog. There's this wonderful bit where he's like, all right, load the program. And Nog's like, what? No, I've, I've been studying for runabout. And he's like, yeah, it wouldn't really be a, a stress test if we tested you on what you practiced, would it? And I kind of like that because that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, I could take this moment to once again complain about the fact that the entrance requirements for Starfleet Academy are uh, silly, <laughs> as we've established multiple times over on TNG. From season one to season uh, four of TNG, we see how ridiculous the Starfleet requirements are on TNG. But whatever, I'm just glad not got in. Oh, speaking of which, that brings us to our next part. Rom, Rom bought a cadet's uniform for him. He went to Garrick and had a custom-tailored, custom-designed uniform made for Nog. And that's just really sweet. I actually felt myself melting just a little bit when I saw that. Because it's not like he needs it. I mean, when he, this is Starfleet. When he goes to the Academy, they will scan him and then have a uniform built for him in seconds without any effort or work because that's it's Starfleet. It's, it's the height of resource control and, and uh, distribution. <laughs> especially on Earth, the literal paradise, right? But I bring this up because this is just, there's so much emotion and heart in doing that kind of a gesture. I'm really big on gestures. And it says a lot about how much Rom really supports his son, that he went and got this, this custom outfit, custom tailored, manually woven, manually tailored by Garrick, spent money on it just so his son would have this, just to support him. Just to be there, just to say, I got your back, kid. One of the things I say so often in real life is that there's a difference between saying, I support you, and doing, I support you. And ideally, it should be both. You should both say and do. In other words, there should be intent as well as action. But there's always something extra special to me about action, about someone who takes action to show you're going to do this, kid, and it's going to be great, and you're going to be awesome. And it's just so sweet. So then Nog fails, which is interesting. And Quark's like, yeah, yeah, well, you'll always have a place at the bar. And Rom gets this interesting look on his face. The scene between Rom and Quark in the, in the, the tunnels or whatever, in, the, in the, the corridor, is great. If anything, I just wish I could rewatch. I might actually rewatch just that one scene when I'm done with this rumination because it was really, really good. Notice that Rom successfully slams Cork physically into the wall without laying a hand on him. He just talks to him and advances slowly until Cork is physically just like, oh my God, up against the wall. And there's in the way he says it again. Max Grodenchuk absolutely nails the role. If you try to sabotage or hurt my son again, I will burn that bar to the ground. And Quark's like, no. Like, in shock. You wouldn't. You couldn't. Watch me. My son's happiness is more important to me than Latinum, and you'd better believe it. And Quark's like, okay. okay. <laughs> it's a really, really great scene. 
I've, I've seen several people say that this is the beginning of Rom standing up to Quark, which is not actually true, as I think I've stated. He's started standing up to him before this. But this, in my opinion, is the beginning of Rom's second character arc. Arguably his third character arc, actually. His first character arc was, I'm a typical Ferengi. And he was. If you pay attention to the early DS9 stuff, he was a typical Ferengi. He even tries to kill Quark at one point. After that, he kind of went into the bumbling, I'm a, you know, I'm a comedic event kind of a, a character, but also someone who has a decent heart underneath him. This is the beginning of what I'm going to refer to as the serious ROM, someone who will actually be a major player in future episodes, believe it or not. And I like this ROM, so I'm glad they went this direction with him. So then he comes in, Nog comes in, and they're like, yeah! And ROM is just bursting with pride. My son has been accepted into the academy. Whole bar erupts in applause. Something about that was kind of heartwarming, too. Not just because of the fact that they were applauding, but because this is the first Ferengi ever accepted to the Academy, at least that I'm aware of. There's something kind of awesome about that. Just, just, I don't know, I don't know. And then, of course, he orders root beer, and this is the introduction of root beer to Deep Space Nine. <coughs> Excuse me. Which will be a recurring thing going forward as well. I really liked half of this episode. Everything about the Ferengi was fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.